0: Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Key Ride Home for Friday, September 17th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the history and future of food trucks and a look at the old tradition of night lunch. The visually striking lantern fly that eastern U.S. states are begging people to kill and why you may not be getting that book you ordered anytime soon. Here are some cool things from the news today. So this was a quick link that Jason posted to Kotki.org today that I found fascinating and kind of wanted to expand on. It's the history of lunch wagons, the predecessor to both diners and the modern food truck. With trucks not really being a common thing until after World War One, in the late 1800s they didn't have food trucks, instead they had lunch wagons. They were horse-drawn freight wagons with exceptionally decadent exteriors and interiors where a few people could sit down to eat or you could be served through a window. And when I say decadent, I mean it. These are the Fabergé eggs of food trucks. Seriously, the lead photo on this article looks straight out of a Wes Anderson film. Check it out for yourself at the Atlas Obscura link in the show notes. Quoting from Atlas Obscura, Etched glass windows and colorful exteriors beckoned eaters inside, and the interiors were painted up with fleur-de-lis and amazing murals that echoed the work of old Dutch masters. The Cincinnati Enquirer described the popular wagon style as having elegant carvings, skilled paintwork, and amenities such as sinks for washing dishes. The average size of the wagons was 8 by 14 feet. They were described as perfect little palaces, says Richard J.S. Goodman, author of American Diner Then and Now, end quote. Despite how over-the-top the wagons were, Aladdin-like some contemporaries described them upon seeing one for the first time, the food they served was pretty simple. Sandwiches, mince pies, coffee— Some of them later had grills added, which expanded the menu a bit, but the point was not to impress with the food, simply fill a need. The need being night lunch. Yes, not dinner, something that comes a bit later, in between supper and a midnight snack. They called it night lunch. It was popular with night shift workers, people who had been out at bars, or anyone hanging about in the late evening hours past restaurants' typical 8pm closings, who were starting to get a bit peckish. I'm not sure who first coined the term, the Oxford English Dictionary doesn't have a first record until much later than its clear usage on patent and advertising materials shared in this article. But the idea of providing a mobile night lunch service got its start in the 1870s with a street vendor named Walter Scott who carried a basket and later a pushcart full of sandwiches and coffee around the business district of Providence, Rhode Island. As his business boomed, he invested in a wagon that he parked mostly outside of a newspaper office, knowing that journalists were a key consumer base for night lunch. Scott wouldn't have a monopoly on the market for long, however. Others took his idea and ran with it, especially in Worcester, Massachusetts. That's where Charles H. Palmer and Thomas H. Buckley patented lunch wagons, the super fancy kind that customers could dine inside of, and started producing them in factories for entrepreneurs around the country. The lavish lunch wagons, however, were difficult to keep up with. Some eventually stripped down their decor to more simplistic appearances. This, as well as the increasing number of automobiles starting to dominate the roads, pushing the lunch wagons off of them, is what led to many of the wagons to pivot to brick-and-mortar restaurants. They kept their simple menus and focus on night lunch, however, becoming what we know today as diners. And Worcester, where Palmer and Buckley made those ornate lunch wagons, is still well known for its many diners and having been the home of the Worcester Lunch Car Company, which built and shipped lunch car-style diners all over the northeastern U.S. But this little slice of history is not the only precursor to food trucks. Around the same time period that Scott put up his first lunch wagon in Providence, Charles Goodnight, a Texas cattle rancher, invented the chuck wagon to feed hungry cowhands along the trail. The original retrofitted U.S. Army wagon that he made came complete with first aid supplies and equipment to get a campfire going. Throughout the 20th century, there were various types of mobile canteens on army bases, outside of construction sites, and of course in big cities like here in New York. The taco truck, specifically, also has a bit of its own history with origins, like the night lunch wagons, in people selling food out of baskets to busy working people. In this case, predominantly women selling tacos out of baskets to the working men of Mexico. Whether or not he was really the first, Raul Martinez is credited with starting the first taco truck in 1974. He bought an old ice cream truck, swapped the freezers for grills, and parked outside of a bar in Los Angeles. His truck was so immediately popular that within six months, he was able to open a brick and mortar restaurant called King Taco, which soon became a multi-million dollar California chain. And thus, the trend of taco trucks swept the Southwest throughout the final decades of the millennium. The surge of creative, popular, ubiquitous food trucks as we know them today really took off in the wake of the Great Recession. Similar to how over the past year and a half, many laid-off chefs have opened their own ghost kitchens, in the early 2000s, a lot of them pivoted from brick and mortar restaurants to food trucks. This also coincided with the idea of street food becoming cool again. And social media, of course, played a part as well. It became easier for people to find out where their favorite food trucks would be and when. I, mean, I remember checking the Twitter page of a particular Waffle Trucks location in 2009 almost every day when I lived in Austin. Social media also helped people learn about the interesting food on offer and dispelled fears around safety concerns, the shine and glitz of high-quality photographs breaking through any myths about grimy, dangerous street food. And what will the next phase of on-demand to-go food be? While the ghost kitchen trend of the pandemic has been pretty interesting, there's another potential trend bubbling up- subscription-based restaurants. Taco Bell just started test driving a taco lover's plan where you can get a taco a day every month for five to ten dollars depending on the location. Panera Bread, Burger King, Pret-a-Manger, and Dunkin' Donuts have all tried or currently have coffee-based subscription plans. Which make a little bit more sense than a taco plan. Someone is more likely to hit up the same coffee place every day than get tacos every day. Though if you're on the lower end of that taco lover's plan, it would only take a few visits a month for that subscription to pay for itself. Writing in The Atlantic, Sahil Desai isn't sold. Quote, "'Restaurant subscriptions are not so sure a bet that every single restaurant you love or hate is destined to soon have one. Both Burger King and Dunkin' discontinued their coffee subscriptions not long after they launched. But the explosion in subscription services is a sign of grander inevitability.'" With subscription tacos, Taco Bell is taking a step from being a weirdo restaurant chain toward being a weirdo tech company. The same is true of its competitors, and really all of corporate America. Taco Bell is copying the Netflix playbook because the way to survive in business is to copy the trends and practices of Silicon Valley. Certainly, this can make our lives easier. Lord knows the difficulty of buying tacos on a non-subscription basis. But the end point of tech taking over every facet of consumer life is that the same nuisances of auto-renewals, buggy apps, data tracking, and so many other issues are no longer simply tech industry problems, they are everything problems. Someone please let me know when we get Chipotle Plus, end quote. And that's a fair point, because Desai also spoke to Lydia Politnick, an economist at Babson College, who pointed out that the advantages of a subscription program for Taco Bell are not just the brand loyalty, ensuring people who have so many fast food choices are more likely to go there and that they'll probably order more than just their free taco when they do, but also that subscription will give the company tons of valuable data about the consumer. And there it is, the deeper reason for the subscriptions. Maybe it'll take off with other companies, maybe it won't, but when you view it from the techno-cynical lens of this one, it definitely makes me yearn for a simple basket of handmade tacos, or someone in a gilded horse-drawn wagon giving me a ham and cheese sandwich and not ever knowing so much as my name. If you live on the east coast of the US, especially in New York or Pennsylvania, and see a visually striking spotted lanternfly, the state governments would like you to forget any humane ideas about carefully moving it from one spot to another, and instead to immediately kill it. The spotted lanternfly is an invasive pest that is not native to the U.S. and apparently is threatening to over 70 of the plant species that it feeds on. Feeds on, meaning draining sap and leaving them weakened and vulnerable to disease. Among those species is the Ailanthus altissima, or tree of heaven, which the New York Times points out is best known as the tree from Betty Smith's 1943 novel A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. But this pernicious beast who has delicate gray wings spotted in black with a bonus set of bright red wings also spotted with black underneath first arrived in the US from Asia seven years ago and entered New York City last year during the pandemic. Environmentalists and ecologists are encouraging people to kill the bugs on site because they have no natural predators here and no organic pesticides that can take them out. Here in New York, the Department of Agriculture is additionally asking people to submit the location where you found the lanternfly on their website. In Pennsylvania, if you're caught moving the insect from one location to another, you could be fined. Apart from the destruction these little lanternflies could cause on native species, governments are being so intense because they know that the lanternflies are quite striking. They're not the kind of bug most people would want to kill, unlike some other invasive species like the Asian longhorned beetle that caused a massive deforestation throughout New York in the late 90s, according to the New York Times. Urban ecologist Mariel Anzalone also shared with the Times another reason the New York state government in particular is sounding the alarm for this particular bug when there are so many other ecological perils to be devoting our energy to. The spotted lanternfly loves grapes and is posing a threat to the vineyards on Long Island and in the Finger Lakes. Quoting Anzalone, Because we have a wine industry in New York State, there's a lot of concern. As soon as there's a commercial dollar sign involved, there's attention. But there are a lot of invasive plants in New York City that are more destructive. End quote. Ah, yes, it all makes sense now. Still, the vineyards aren't the only things threatened by this boozy, speckled bug. So if you live in the area and want to take a look so you can become a mercenary for the state, you can find a few photos at the link in the show notes. If you follow the publishing world at all, or any authors on social media, you may have seen many of them imploring you to start ordering any books you may want for the next several months now. That's because between shipping delays and a mounting paper shortage, companies are warning that you may not be able to get that book you want to buy as a Christmas gift if you don't order soon. I have a feeling this is a refrain we're going to start hearing from every industry soon. Remember how bad shipping was around the holidays last year? There's no indication so far that it'll be any better this year. In fact, the shipping container shortage and the ripple effects from the Ever Given getting stuck in the Suez Canal are still being felt. But in the book world, the challenges are doubled thanks to a paper shortage. Christine Swinowski, the director of World Editions, told Book Riot, quote, Paper shortages are becoming increasingly prevalent. Paper mills can't keep up with paper demand and are starting to ration resources to printers who, in turn, can't maintain inventory levels. We expect these shortages and delays to continue as paper mills aren't increasing their capacity, partially due to difficulties securing enough raw materials to maintain production, end quote. And while major publishers and trade wholesalers are simply putting in as big of orders as they can as early as they can to make sure they have any stock that they can, independent publishers don't have the resources to do the same. They say printers are favoring larger orders and clients that can, quoting Sadowski again, exert the most financial pressure, end quotes. But even the big publishers have been cancelling some orders with major customers and pushing back publication dates for upcoming titles, which I can tell you, as someone who has published a book and had a paperback release cancelled at the start of the pandemic, it's a total headache. There's an intricate map of marketing and publicity that just falls apart when the release dates change, public interest and momentum is tough to regain, and there are logistical challenges with inventory and back orders. And all of this isn't just a US problem. The shipping issues are happening worldwide, and in the United Kingdom, publishers are citing the added difficulties of Brexit and pandemic-driven truck driver shortages. Each nation, it seems, has their own unique mix of challenges. Book Riot does share some good advice on what you can do and how you can help out, First, it's new releases that are being delayed the most. Books that are already printed will only suffer from shipping delays, either to stores or to you, not from the paper shortage. Ebooks and digital audiobooks won't have either issue, of course, so consider one of those options instead of a brand new release. If you do want a new release, pre-order it now. It's a great way to support an author who's in the sucky position of having a pandemic release. But try not to be bothered if you don't get the book right away on its publication date or for whatever occasion you were hoping to have it for. Quoting Book Riot, The best way to assure you get the book you want before Christmas is to have ordered it by yesterday, or today if you lack a time machine, end quote. I have a feeling that's going to be the case for a lot of goods this year. The other piece of advice that Book Riot and others give to cut through the shipping delays, which I'd say applies across the board for all goods... Buy what's already on the shelves in your local stores instead of getting exactly what you want online. No shipping delays for you, better for the environment, and supporting local businesses. Win, win, win. Well, that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.